TL Talk Radio, Season 4, Episode 5. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 5 of TL Talk Radio, a podcast with Lynn Funihetten and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funihetten. Good morning, Randy. Good morning, Lynn. So today we're speaking with Samuel Levin and Susan Engel, co-authors of A School of Our Own, the story of the first student-run high school and a new vision for American education. Sam is the founder of two innovative student-centered programs at his school in Massachusetts, Project Sprout and the Independent Project. He's a graduate of Oxford University where he is pursuing a doctorate in zoology. Susan Engel is a professor of developmental psychology at Williams College where she's also the founder and director of the Williams Program in Teaching. She's the author of several books and co-author with her son of A School of Our Own from the New Press. She lives in New Marlboro, Massachusetts. A School of Our Own tells a remarkable story of the independent project, the first student-run high school in America. We're really looking forward to learning more about this. Um, founder Samuel Levin, a high school junior who had already achieved international fame for creating Project Sprout, the first student-run farm-to-school lunch program in the United States, was frustrated with his own education and saw disaffection among his peers. So in response, he lobbied for and created a new school based on a few simple ideas about what kids need from their high school experience. So welcome to the show, Sam and Susan. Thanks. Thank right. you so much. Nice to be talking to you. We're excited to speak with you because we come from a small school district here in Pennsylvania uh, where we want to connect more with our students. Uh, we want to hear their voice. And we are also very much interested in school transformation. So we want to dig into your story. We read your book. Fascinating story. So to kick off our conversation today, uh, can you give us some background on this thing called the Independent Project and how it first started? And there was a connection that you made in the book to the Sprout Project. And how did that influence how you began to think about creating your own school? Well, yeah, I had, I had, I had started a few years previously when I was a freshman. I had started a, a student-run garden, uh, which grew food for the cafeterias in our school district uh, and provided a sort of educational resource uh, for you know, K through 12. Uh, and, and it was what I saw in the garden that really inspired me to start the independent project. Uh, and, and really it was the, it was the stark contrast between what I saw in the garden and what I saw amongst my friends in the classroom. Um, so these, you know, every Saturday morning at 7am, I'd see these high schoolers waking up to come volunteer to, to work, to weed and, and water and, um, and harvest after the cafeterias, um, and they would be, you know, they'd come in early before school, they'd stay late after practice, they'd, you know, like I said, come in on weekends. And then these same students I saw in the classroom were sort of sitting there lifeless, uh, doing whatever they could to sort of not do their schoolwork and not pay attention and not uh, do their homework. And I just, it, it, was, it was so shocking to me, uh, you know, seeing, um, realizing that that these people could be so different they could come so alive they could be so dedicated so passionate um so motivated and just starting to think well what is it about the classroom that's stripping them of what of whatever it is i'm seeing in the garden uh and and what it came down to sort of towards the end of you know during my junior year was um was realizing that what they had in the garden was a, a sense of autonomy you know 
it was their garden. Mm -hmm. No one was making them do it. No one was telling them what to do or giving them tasks. They were doing it because they had chosen to and they cared about it. And I was seeing the exact opposite in classrooms. So I just began to wonder, well, what would happen in school if we started to give uh, students some of the autonomy that, that they have in the garden? This idea of autonomy drove you to, uh, as you mentioned in your book, sit down with your mom and share your frustration. And then what happened? Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I guess I was pretty fed up by that point, and, uh, you know, uh, just, just seeing, I was, it was basically just seeing sort of wasted potential amongst my friends and seeing them so unhappy and disaffected. Um, and I guess, yeah, one day, you know, came home, sat down at the dinner table and was just complaining, uh, um, as I often did to my mom. <laughs> and, and I said, no, I, I can't, I just can't take it anymore. It's, you know. These kids are just six hours a day. They're just like, you know, their eyes are closed, basically. Um, and finally, you know, she turned to me and she said, well, you know, if, if it's so bad, if you think school's so wrong, why don't you start your own school? Uh, and, and, and obviously I, I did. Um, <laughs> so I think what's pretty amazing about that is uh, I would guess that most of our learners in high school these days probably feel a lot of the way that you did. Uh, what what was so special about what motivated you to actually take some action? Because we don't see what you did happening in, in many of our schools. So what what is it that's different? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think I think uh, I was fortunate to have had created Project Sprout because, you know, I for that, I had to go through this whole process of getting the school to give us permission to use the land. We were a bunch of 14, 15 year olds who wanted to dig up an entire soccer field. And, and so I guess I'd had the experience of, of wanting to do something. In that case, it was wanting to grow food and connect people to the land and, and realizing, well, if you want to do something, you can just do it. And I think if I hadn't had that experience, I might not have, uh, you know, felt the same way. But, but when it came time, you know, when I became frustrated with school, it was a similar kind of kind of thought process mm -hmm. um and and i you know i have to give my mom credit i'm sure also a lot of adults when kids come to them with complaints they say oh well that's high school that's life one day you'll get to college you know that'll be fun uh and and having adults around you i think that's one of the most common thing that that sort of you know crushes something like this is their ne sort of negative response and having someone who said well just do it you know mm -hmm. um yeah, you know, I've Sam and I have talked about the school quite a bit, but I find that every time I listen to him describe the beginning of it, I, I think about something different. And sitting here today, I'm thinking about this idea that we want kids to develop a sense of self-efficacy, that by the time they're, you know, 20, we want them to think they can do things and we expect them to be in charge of of many things about the course of their life and how they spend their days and the kind of work they do and their relationships but we don't spend much time most adults don't think about teenagers in terms of promoting a feeling of self-efficacy mm -hmm. and that's such a big ugly word actually it's not a very nice word to say so it's an, there's an easier way to put that which is when kids talk about what they want to do encourage them to do it mm -hmm. And uh, that very small piece, which is encouraging them to, and then maybe doing little things to make it possible for them to be active, that's 
that's a fairly simple thing to do, but it's not part of our usual way of thinking about what our role is in relation to kids, mm -hmm. which is to give them permission and, and give them, you know, encouragement to just act and to be sort of in charge. And when you think about it, we don't let teenagers be in charge very much. In mm -hmm. fact, we spend a lot of time trying to keep them Control. from being in charge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, around here, and, you know, around here, we talk about the, we use the word agency and uh, mm -hmm. how do we create the conditions? You know, you're using the word um, autonomy, it's probably similar. Um, and so how do we create the conditions that kids feel that they own and have some sort of voice in what they do? And it doesn't mean that they're off just doing anything that they want to do, but how do they have a voice and how do we co-create um, those learning experiences and opportunities and connect it to something that they're passionate about. Mm -hmm. And it seems like in your story that, you know, what you're saying is you've, ex you experienced that autonomy in, in the Sprout project and uh, carried that over to creating your own school, which is, which is pretty remarkable. <laughs> you know, I'll just add one more thing. And as I said, I hadn't really thought about this before. It has to do with changing what your goal as an adult, from the adult's perspective, changing your goal for the outcome or the, the outcome of the educational process. If one thing that gets in the way, I think of teachers and parents, is a, a great worry that the kids aren't gonna get the thing they need them to get, the mastery of grammar or the geometry or whatever it is. But if your real concern is that they get a sense of agency and autonomy, if you think, okay, I'll know that I did a good job as a parent or a teacher, if this person has a sense of what they wanna do and how to go about doing it, it shifts everything because then, so because you would assume that teenagers are going to stumble as they try to mm -hmm. be in charge of themselves and, and make things happen. I, I, I'm sure when I said to Sam, why don't you start your own school? And he said, okay, maybe I will. Somewhere I must have thought, yeah, and maybe you won't. I mean, maybe it won't go. <laughs> but I had to also believe that that was way more worth it than whatever it is he'd miss by putting all his efforts into that. Mm -hmm. So that's a sort of mind shift on the part of adults. So interesting, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking through the lens of a parent and, and marveling at your um, ability to, to encourage him to do that. That's really exciting and certainly um, Sam, you recognize that as well. So Sam, what does it really look like in the independent project? You know, what's a typical day look like um, for, for learners? So our days were split in half, essentially. Um, and uh, the mornings were dedicated to what we called uh, sort of academics. Um, uh, and the afternoons were dedicated to um, an individual endeavor, we called it. So so basically, in the afternoon, you, you had something that you chose for the whole semester that something you were going to master. Uh, you know, you were going to uh, write a play or build a boat or, or whatever, you know, and you'd work on that. And that was your time in the afternoon, um, whatever was involved in that process. And then the mornings, um, we we either were working for a period of time on the sciences, on the sort of um, social and natural sciences, uh, or we were working on the languages, um, maths and, and, and arts. Um, uh, sorry, uh, literary languages. But... Um, and, and, and yeah, and then so for the academics, we were sort of working together and independently. So for example, for the sciences, uh, you would come up with a question, a natural social science question, you know, uh, why do we cry or, um, 
or uh, why did you know what started World War? What really started World War II? And then you'd spend the week researching, finding the answer, and then on Friday teach it to the rest of the group. Um, so it was a mixture of sort of that kind of uh, really independent, you know, long-term work and sort of slightly more collaborative uh, uh, and shorter-term academic work. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about um, the um, individual endeavor and how. You know, what did that look like? What kind of supports did you have from adults or other learners, if any? Uh, yeah, so for the individual endeavor, the only real requirement, well, there are two requirements were that, you know, it was something you were excited to do uh, and that it was something meaty, uh, something that, you know, you could really take up a semester, you know. It, uh, it couldn't be to sort of practice breaking pencils in half every day or something. <laughs> um, and and so there was a pretty ra- wide range of things ranging from very fairly sort of um, uh, uh, I don't know what the word is sort of physical like le- you know uh, learning jazz piano uh, to more sort of um, uh, slightly more sort of academic um, and and the idea was it was part of the task to figure out what you needed you know what kind of support you needed did you need to bring in a professor from the nearby college, uh, you know, which is something that happened. Or did you need to find a teacher in the school to meet with once a week? Um, uh, or did you need regular feedback from your peers? Um, or did you need a month of total independence? You know, um, because the whole, you know, a big part of it was that we never had the opportunity in school to really take something on, something serious and meaningful and long term, um, and so. A big part of it was figuring all of that out, figuring mm-hmm. out what you need, what you didn't need, you know, making mistakes. I'm Sam, you tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, but again, listening to him describe this to you, too, a thought comes to mind, which is in terms of the morning, I think one of the things that they emphasized or that I heard him talking about that year was helping the other students and getting himself to really think about a question they really wanted to ask. So in the social and natural sciences, it wasn't enough to ask a question and spend a week learning about it. It had to be a question you genuinely cared about. And I think that often in schools, when students are given a sort of mini faux autonomy, it's it's just that, it's sort of pick a question and they get 20 minutes to pick the question. And of course they end up not really caring about the answer because they didn't really care about the question. So they they worked hard to, to ask questions they cared about and then pose a question that was a good question because there's a weak version and a strong version of any question. And the same with the endeavors, as I listened to him describe the individual endeavors, as I recall, you spent a lot of time figuring out what you needed to do to pursue that endeavor, you and the other students. But you also spent some time picking the endeavor so that it wasn't just, um, um, you know, uh, what's that word? You just uh, sort of arbitrary where you grab at the first mm-hmm. reasonable thing you can. And, well, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the, one of the things we learned, something I didn't really plan or foresee, but one of the things we realized is that serious work, meaningful work takes time. And a lot of that time doesn't look like much on paper, you know? So, um, you know, and, and, and I think that's one of the things that, that, that one of the challenges in school is people feel that every minute needs to be an active minute that can be documented what was mm-hmm. achieved. You know, every 40 minute period, you need to say what we did. Some, to really do something worthwhile, a lot of those 40 minute 
time chunks are just sitting, thinking, wallowing, stepping back, making a mistake. And, and I think that was one of the things we were, that was so essential to, to the successes we experienced was that we, we, we were able to sort of wrestle with, uh, you know, a week of struggling where, where there wasn't much progress mm -hmm. or we were able to wrestle, to, to take the time to figure out what it was that we needed to do as opposed to sort of just having to move forward for the sake of moving forward. Mm -hmm. So bring some of these ideas to life and can you share a specific example or a story about some of your learning during this time period um, and how it represented that idea of autonomy and some of these other uh, characteristics that you're explaining? Well, I guess my favorite story about sort of academic autonomy um, is about a, a, a boy who we call uh, Ricks in the book. You know, he was someone who his teachers said, you know, uh, he's a he's a failure he's not you know he's he doesn't care about school he's gonna you know he'll drop out he's doesn't care about anything so he's a lost cause right and in the beginning you know when when it came time to sort of start our our, our work in the sciences and pursue questions he was reluctant you know he had always hated school and he didn't really see why this would be any different you know um and he was reluctant to jump in and he thought himself that he didn't have any interests because he had never been given a chance to figure out what might interest him. Um, and after sort of some gradual like prodding from his peers, like, you know, come on, Rick, see, you could just try something, right? He eventually stumbled upon, I was actually reading A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking at the time, at, at that point, and he sort of noticed it and picked it up and ended up looking at it. And he just sort of slipped and tumbled. And again, slowly, you know, he, it was the giving him the time to just say, well, you know, no one's gonna, no one's, no one's standing there with the, you know, you know, there's no taskmaster here. No one's gonna make you do this. <laughs> we just want you to, you know, we want you to learn like we are. And if you find something great, and if you don't, that's your loss. And like I said, sort of slowly, he did stumble into this and the really and and on the sort of the end of that first week of him reading about uh to try to figure out like about the universe and whether it's infinite or finite and what black holes are you know he he taught us about it he gave this amazing sort of presentation uh, and you could see this this sort of glimmer of excitement and i i think the real one of the real turning points for me realizing what was actually happening during the independent project was at the end of that week when it was time or the next Monday when it was time to pick new science questions. And and Rick said, um, actually, would it be okay if I kept working on the, you know, the, the Stephen Hawking stuff? And I, I think to go from being a student who everyone viewed as someone who didn't care about anything to sort of asking his friends permission to, to, to pursue something even deeper than, than ever, than, you know, he was necessarily planning to, I think was pretty eye opening in terms of what autonomy can so certainly you've spent a lot of time um, listening to Learner Voice, and that's something that's important to Randy and I, and we're starting to um, think about ways we can in engage our learners and sharing their voice. Um, what suggestions would you give to us or other school leaders uh, about leveraging student voice to transform our schools? Well, you know, I look, I, I think you're already off to the right start. I mean, I think you're, you're, I don't know how, how rare that is, that that's something you care about, but I think your students are already very fortunate that, that that's something you're, you're putting, you're giving attention to and, and working towards. 
you know, I, I personally have always been a very, a little wary of the expression student voice. And I don't know if that just speaks to my own personal school or in the way it was there, but I, I always worried that the, the, the phrase student voice always sort of evoked, uh, you know, giving a student a sort of seat on a committee that was actually run by adults. And mm. it was just a sort of say, look, you, you guys, right, right. And, uh, and like, look, you have representation. Um, and it was always, it, to me, it always it sort of uh, evoked like um, giving them kind of, yeah, nominal voice, giving them, giving them the sort of illusion of that, you know, that they, and not always intentionally, but and, and my, my point is, uh, I think students already have a voice. Uh, they've got loud ones. Um, I think what they really need is, uh, you know, a, a, a hammer and nails, uh, you know, and, and a chance to really create new experiences. Um, they don't need a seat at the table. They, it's need, they need the table, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's adults who are the ones who get the voice. <laughs> and, 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 you know, so, and, uh, so that's, I guess, in terms of my advice, I think always go further, go further than you feel comfortable going. Um, because uh, it can be it, that, you know, that thing we were talking about earlier about, uh, as you know, you're saying you're impressive that my mom was sort of able to say, you know, go for it. Uh, but I think even, you know, that's something we realized even in the independent project, there were even moments for me and the other students when we felt, ooh, should we step in and tighten, you know, tighten the reins a little bit? What, what might, you know, what might go wrong? Uh, you know, things are, things are tough right now. Do we need to, do we need to go back to the comforts of, of, uh, of more traditional school? And I think it takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength and a lot of patience to, to give students much more than a voice. And, and I think that's really, if we want the most from our schools, that's what we need to do. I would add, before when Sam was talking, I think he knows this already, I always worry, he worries about the term student voice, I worry about the word academics. And that, I'm saying that as someone who teaches in a super academic place. Um, but the reason I worry about it is it focuses on the kind of formal, conventional outcomes of a certain kind of process at school that that aren't really, I don't think, what either of us were seeing or focusing on when Sam was doing the independent project. And the reason I say that is in addition to this thing about student autonomy or student voice, there's also a belief that every student in such a learning community really wants to think and know things. So it's about focusing less on academics and more on the intellectual life of every student. Because no one is born without a strong desire to think mm-hmm. uh, and a strong desire to ga- engage with ideas and to learn things it's sort of fundamental to what it means to be human. And so part of it is not only encouraging students to take charge and, and make the table and then sit at the table and be in charge of the table, but it's what's going to go on at that table. And I, I mean, that requires a community that's committed, that, that sort of seeped in the idea of intellectual pursuit. And one of the things that I think Sam's story uh, about the the kid and uh, Stephen Hawkins reminds it reminds me every time I hear it is that learning genuine learning genuine intellectual pursuit is contagious and we know that from a lot of evidence so what schools need to do is allow it to be like kids catch that from each other 
So it's not only about the individual student voice, it's about all of them collectively having a, a culture, a community in which learning is the thing that they want to do and are allowed to do. So the thread that I hear going through both of the things that you've just shared is, is this idea of control. And the adults want the control, um, whether we want to, you know, admit that or not. It could be through, you know, having one representative on an adult-controlled committee, or it could actually be giving the control to the students. So how do we help the adults to understand that we don't have to control everything and that um, this sort of... Uh, non-dominant idea of education that you're sharing here, that your school was built on, um, is is the control is in the hands of the learners. And how do we help the adults to understand that that control is okay in the hands of the learners and that there's going to be some balance between the adults and the learners too, but we can put more control in the hands of the learners. How do we help adults to understand that? I'm going to jump in here. Uh, first of all, it's a great question. And um, when you find the really perfect answer, please call me back <laughs> and tell me. But um, I think part of it has to do with encouraging adults to shift the metaphor they use when they think about their role as students. Um, you know, because there are a lot of great metaphors. My students at Williams, when they take a course with me on education, we list all the words on the board for what the role of teacher is. And it's like guide and babysitter and friend mm. and coach, instructor. I mean, it fills boards and boards. It's so many words. But then you could go through those and think, well, which are the words that we really want to describe what we do? And part of it Part of it is getting rid of the false polarity between total control and no control. Because, mm -hmm. you know, kids actually mostly like grown-ups and young children very much want to emulate the older people in their community. That We're born with that urge to, to try to be like others in, that are other human beings. So it doesn't take much to have some good influence over the students that are around you or to be a guide or to be a resource. But it it... It requires one of the things it requires is earning, not demanding their respect that you know something they want to get from you, how to do something or a fact or suggestions or a reality check. And if you sh if you could help teachers shift the metaphors they use to describe their role and believe that if they're a resource that kids are going to find appealing they're gonna kids will turn to that resource because kids do that's not a net that's not unnatural it comes naturally i, I mean I, I also think that 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 the the hardest part is 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 the being willing part the being willing to 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 engage in this kind of more collaborative more even-footed relationship because the truth is we don't actually have to figure it out how adults exactly need to be with students that that's one you know that's something that can be figured out together as you go forwards and one of the i think one of the essential pieces to to making this kind of change something like the independent project or something similar is is accepting that it doesn't all have to be designed from the start that you can build it together and make changes together and uh, you know, say, look, actually, you know, you're not here. You're you as an adult aren't here enough for me. I need you more, or I need you less, or you know, and 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 vice versa. Real conversation. So that that those pieces, those details, I think, 
can and should be worked out together collaboratively as you go. So the real question is whether we're going to be willing as, you know, as adults uh, to make that first step to open up the doors of that relationship. Um, and I don't know what to say in terms, you know, how to get people sort of willing or not too afraid to do that, other than to say, you know, if the independent project is anything for me, it's, it's an example that look, this, we tried something like this and it, and it wasn't a disaster, you know, burned <laughs> ground. I mean, yeah, you know, one other thing I would say about adults in a school is that it's way more fun. It's a way better job to be a resource and a guide and a sort of, you know, if you think about a master-apprentice relationship, to be the kind of intellectual, you know, you know a little bit more than the kid or you have, you've done some things that might help them. Being in that role is so much more rewarding that all this talk about making schools a better place for teachers, a place where good people want to teach, this does that. So if you can give teachers even a little experience of this, they want more of it. Who wouldn't rather be a, a, a guide and a mentor than a jail keeper or a bookkeeper? I mean, when you think about what makes people want to go into teaching, it's the fun part. So once they get a taste of this, they want more too. And I'm thinking also sort of this, the starting with the why and reflecting on, you know, how has this experience helped you for Oxford and life beyond? You know, what's, you shared that to help teachers understand what it really means, what has it really meant for you? Yikes. <laughs> I never thought about that part. No. Um, uh, I mean, I, you know, uh, one, one, one thing is that, is that a big, big element of the independent project was that it wasn't a means to an end. You know, it wasn't there to prepare me for Oxford or someone else for their job or whatever it was that, um, it was about making this vibrant period in your life really meaningful and, and stuff. So I'm, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sort of say that it, it, what it gave me, you know, was what made it successful is that allowed me to go to Oxford or whatever, you know, but, but I, but, you know, that said, I have found that the, the chance I had during the independent project to, to be responsible for myself and my own education was uh, an essential tool at, at, you know, at Oxford, where a place where the most of the learning is independent. um, And now, doing my PhD, it's, it's, it's kind of like a big independent project, you know, a big individual. So you, it was a while, it's been a while since you've started the independent project. Where is it today in that school? What's happening with it? Yeah. You know, I, one of the great things is that I don't really know. <laughs> I mean, other than that, uh, as of last year, it was still running. Um, uh, and I know it's changed a lot in terms of, well, the best change is that we were originally housed in uh, the coach's office of the girls' locker room because the school wouldn't really give us a space. <laughs> um, and now they have a big workshop and everything. So that's the big improvement that I was excited about. Um, but I, but I, I, you know, I don't know. It's not, it's not, the independent project is not me. It's, it's the new students that make it what it is each year. And each year they reflect and say, we want something different. And that's what makes it great is not that it's you know so uh uh and i don't know and i and, and i i know at least once uh the school district thought it wanted to get rid of it and and a young student 
kind of said, no, we need this. You can't get rid of it and kept it alive. And I don't know. I'm sure that will happen again. Uh, but for now, it's it's still still kicking. <laughs> so what's next for you, Sam and Susan? What are you working on now? Mostly I'm working on my PhD, which <laughs> is in evolutionary biology. And I have, uh, you know, about two years left. So that's that's my day job. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I think one of the things that we've talked about the most at the end of the book, we talk about the things that we think we could have done differently in the independent project mm -hmm. for the things I and one of the real tricky bits that keeps coming back up in conversations that we have with each other is is how math should work in schools um, and that's something I'm really interested in at the moment I use a, I, I, I use math in my work uh, in my research uh, a lot and I'm really interested in in how it can be sort of taught better so that's I don't know that conversation keeps bubbling up mm -hmm. interesting how about you, Susan? Mine's not so interesting. Um, I, uh, I mean, it just sounds a little more conventional. I um, am doing some really fun research on how children learn to pursue ideas mm. and working on a book about that. And I'm also working on a book about how teachers can transform their teaching by understanding child development. Um, because as a developmental psychologist, and it was true when I watched Sam go through this, my understanding of what development is like and the changes that kids go through and how they think and how they process information informs everything I think about how teachers teach. And when teachers learn to think about development, it, it changes everything about how they are in the classroom. So I when I talk to teachers about that, everywhere I go and give talks, they say, okay, what book should we read? And I, then I'm embarrassed because I can't think of a book to tell them. <laughs> so okay, maybe I could write that book. So mm -hmm. that's... Sounds fascinating. So thank you so much for joining us, Sam and Susan. Uh, for our listeners to learn more about their work, you can watch uh, Google Talk, which is linked in the show notes, and also check out the book, uh, School of Our Own. Each episode, we leave you the question or two to think about with the idea of provoking some conversation. So this episode's questions, what might your learners want to change about the way they learn if they could? And how would your school transformation give learners autonomy? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just connect with the resources shared, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season four, episode five. That's all for now. We'll be back soon featuring other innovative thought leaders. Thanks again, Sam and Susan. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thanks.